Hello and welcome back to another episode of After This, the greatest unification podcast in all of the universe. Uh, my name is Daniel. My name is Carla. And I'm Shannon. And this week we're going to be talking about a topic that was actually suggested to me by the other guy that runs and probably does a lot more work than I do um, at the moment, um, the Young World Federalists. Uh, Nick, he um, mentioned I should do one about the European Federalists because obviously the two things really go hand in hand um, in a lot of cases because a lot of the ideas about world federalism are sort of born out of the same things that created European federalism um, and the same people were involved and a lot of the cases they saw Europe as the world. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of a combination of things, some good, some bad, but the two things are really tied together. Like Winston Churchill is a great example, Mm. big world federalist. Um, but the thing is that his version of world federalism was a bit more like Eurocentric. Mm. Um, so it was, yeah, you know, it, it, it's sort of the same thing, but not quite. Yeah, I'll go through. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. Post, so, like, post, the entire post. world from Britain to what, like... Now it's, now it's changed, but at the time of conception. So in the post-World War II period, um, there was this big, like, nationalism is terrible, that we need to do something else because this has been a really crappy start to a century. Um, <laughs> and um, so European federalism and world federalism both sort of blew up and became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously as a reaction. And that's why all the stuff with the UN started in 45, I think the 47. Um, and then the Montreux Declaration was also in 47, which is about um, world federalism. Instead of just a UN, they need a lot more than just the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff was coming out at the same time, as well as the plans to make some kind of European federation. Um, uh, so we could finally get past it. So in many ways, it mirrors, it mirrors world federalism um, because... But in their case, it's uh, Eurocentric in in most ways. So the first, obviously, the first incantation of the early EU, because EU development was sort of parallel to federal development. The two things were kind of exactly the same thing for a long time uh, because they were both steps in the same direction. So the European coal and steel community was uh, the process of intergovernmentally pooling powers harmonizing national policies and creating and enforcing supranational institutions. Um, and the idea of that was to basically start this amalgamation of European interests and economies and everything else. And obviously the federalists in their head were thinking to themselves, this will end up as a federal state. And some people were sitting there thinking, this won't end up as a federal state. <laughs> and obviously the latter for the meantime, have won. But um, it says also that other than the vague aim of ever closer union in the 1983 solemn declaration of Europe, of the European Union, um, there's no current policy or plans to create a federal state. Because basically that's what the EU largely is. It's a lot of vague, vague terms because even they're not quite sure what they are. Um, but everyone wants it to become a federation. Mm. Anyway, um, take it away. Uh, The European Union, the EU, is not legally de jure a federation, although various academics have argued that it contains some federal characteristics. Uh, Here's the view of Professor R. Daniel Kellerman. Kellerman? I'm going to say Kellerman, but I'm not sure. K-E-L-E-M-E-N. By the Uh, way, de jure means legally, basically, in legal terms. Not de jure. Uh, so, Daniel, uh, our Daniel Kelman of Rutgers University on how various scholars approach the issue. <clears throat> Unencumbered by the prejudice that the EU is, oh, I don't know how to pronounce that French bit. 
Sui generis. Unencumbered by the prejudice that the EU is sui generis and incomparable, federalism scholars now regularly treat the EU as a case in their comparative studies. For the purposes of the present analysis, the EU has the necessary minimal attributes of a federal system, and crucially, the EU is riven with many of the same tensions that afflict federal systems. So basically, um, there's this constant debate going on that Europe hasn't developed into a federal entity Whereas some are saying it sort of has. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both sides are kind of correct because really there's a lot of institutions and things going on that are kind of federal. But at the same time, it doesn't have a lot of the key components that you would need to call something federal. So the EU is just kind of a mess, as we're all completely aware. <laughs> um, and basically the federalists want it to keep going and a lot of other people are terrified of, you know, more governments and things because they don't really understand a lot of stuff or they, you know, think it's going to turn into a tyranny or whatever else. Um, so it's sort of caught in this spot where it can't really become anything else uh, and it's sort of a half state. Yeah, yeah. sorry, keep going. <clears throat> According to Thomas Rice and Tanya A. Borsel, the EU only lacks two significant features of a federation. First, the members the member states remain the masters of the treaties. I they have the exclusive power to amend or change the constitution treaties of the EU. Second, the EU lacks the real tax and spend capacity. In other words, there is no fiscal fiscal federate federalism. So basically, mm -hmm. you've still got you basically you can't really call it a federation in the fact that all the member states have to basically agree to something in order for it to become law in the EU. Yeah. It can't be that the majority wrote votes on it; all of them have to, otherwise it doesn't happen. Um, so it's not quite the same thing as a federal system. It's basically everyone individually has to say okay, otherwise no dice. Yeah. Um, which is not really a functional democracy. It means not much is going to happen. It's more because... of a dinner party. <laughs> well, I mean, it means that it means that not a lot can happen because you have to have unanimity, unanimity, yeah. which means that everyone has to be on board, and that's going to massively restrict how much is going to be possible. The other thing is that they don't really have a taxation system. They have donate. They basically get donations or fees paid by um, governments to fund the EU's facility and, you know, what it does. So it has elements and it has like a parliament and a commission and things like that. But at the same time, all the things that it sort of does have to be agreed to by all the member states with mm -hmm. no exceptions. Like everyone has to agree on everything and it can't raise its own funds. And mm -hmm. it can't really manipulate fiscal policy on its own. It has to do it through the states themselves. Um, so it's not really the overarching thing that it wants to be. Hmm. Um, so other academics have argued that the EU is unlikely to evolve into a unified federal state. In their words, widespread political opposition to the creation of anything approximating a large unified executive bureaucracy in Brussels has long since ended hopes for the few who harboured them of creating a European superstate. Hmm. <clears throat> Go ahead. Some common points in the context are that the European budget 
is very small and does not finance a lot of economic activity of the European Union. That each state member of the European Union has its own foreign relations and has its own military. That is, that it is often the case that the European the European member states decide to opt out of agreements which they oppose mm. and that the member states will still re- still retain sovereignty over a large number of areas which might be expected to be transferred to a federal authority under a federal system. So, yeah, I mean, again, they're sort of highlighting the same thing that basically everyone has their own military and everyone's allowed to basically do whatever they want, more or less. Um, if you agree to be part of the big club for this particular thing, then you can be or you can't be. Um, so it's like it's like a whole series of opt-in and opt-out laws almost. It's, mm. it's like you do get the combined effect when everyone's jumping in on something, but at the same time there's some things people might just not worry about. Um, and then, yeah, like with the military, each of them having their own military is really inefficient, obviously. But again, it's something that they haven't really gotten past. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, again, they're just sort of hammering home the thing that there's this bureaucratic paranoia um, that there's going to be some big super state that's going to take over everything. But the thing is, you know... As I've always said, countries are already doing all that stuff that they don't like. It's no real difference if the guy being a shithead to you is in London or he's in Brussels. Like, <laughs> like you know, if you have a, a crappy local national government, um, it's not automatically going to be worse because it's in another country, you know, or it's in or it's in Brussels or something like that. Like, I guess people it's about- are just people. Yeah, I guess it's about the number of people that are affected by that simultaneously and the mm. ability of nearby nations to kind of put pressure on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. I'll move on to reading the next section. Uh, one important fact is that treaties must be agreed by all member states, even if a particular treaty has support among the vast majority of the population of the EU. Member states may also also want legally binding guarantees that a particular treaty will not affect a nation's position on certain issues. Yeah, so, again, it's basically... It's voluntary. It's basically like... If I don't like this thing, I want to make sure nothing's going to happen to inconvenience me in it happening. Mm-hmm. And it, it's hard to work as a whole when you've got every single little piece absolutely adamant that it still needs to be a little piece, mm. um, like 100%. Whereas to make a functional federation, you really need to have a certain amount of sovereignties being surrendered. Um, mm. If you don't surrender some of the decision-making or some of the processes then really you're just a bunch of people agreeing to get along. And obviously the EU is kind of unique in the fact that it's like a bunch of people agreeing to get along and they've added a bunch of legal stuff to it that makes it a lot more definite that they'll get along. (laughs) But functionally, they're all still separate states. It's just that going to war would be really difficult now between them like really difficult so which is good like uh, i understand that you, you want things to go further but it is a mm. good step to mm. oh no question yeah. and that's something i can never i never debate the european no, union no, is, is is way better than having no european union <laughs> it's, it's just that it's like it's it was developing in this track this straight track of like this then this then this then this then this, then this. 
And then very suddenly it was sort of like, ah, oh, we're getting nervous now about we're going to make another country. Um, you know, and obviously all the years of Cold War Stalinism and stuff had everyone terrified about what a big state is. Mm-hmm. Um, even though European countries have largely proven that their version of a big state is not Stalin. <laughs> like, they've had a lot. They Like, you know, the, the Scandinavian countries, famous examples, obviously, have pretty big governmental structures. Like, they touch a lot of stuff, big public sectors, um, all that kind of stuff. And they've kind of proven that they don't really go crazy with it. But, again, people are terrified of, you know, the Stalin and the Hitler stories and everything else. Mm-hmm. So you end up with what you have now, which is kind of the Harvesies thing. But this is kind of the point I was getting to. Um, that, you know, all the, all the national political parties that you have in these countries, you know, they're representing a constituency that thinks in terms of nationalism and everything else, so they kind of have to reflect it. So you end up in this cycle where nothing can really change because you've got nationalistic people talking to nationalistic parties and nationalistic parties that have to listen to nationalistic people and nothing can really change because that's what everyone's still caught in and that's the world that everyone thinks of. Um, So the idea was to do some things to change that dynamic, basically. So... um, so now flowing into what's sort of happening now with European federalism, so I just wanted to sort of set the ground and explain the situation. <clears throat> um, you guys get to read out the different organizations. Oh, you'll, you'll do. <laughs> Let me start. Union of the European Federalists. The, European, the Union of the European Federalists, the UEF, is a European non-governmental organization campo- campaigning for a federal Europe. It consists of 20 constituents. Constituent. I I know the word. I just was like, no, you're not saying it, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Organizations, and it has been active, and it has been active campaigning for, oh, sorry, has been active at the European national and local levels for more than 50 years. A young branch called the Young European Federalists also exists in 30 countries of Europe. The YWF has contact regularly regularly with the JEF. So JEF um, is the Young European Federalists because obviously they use the, um, the German term for young, so young. So it's JEF instead of YEF. Um, but basically, we have and a number of the other federalist world federalist movements have contact with this guy named Chris, who works at the JEF. And JEF's pretty big, like the UEF. Actually, the whole thing is pretty big. This is one of the main organizations that has a lot of support from all the people throughout Europe that sort of think it's a good idea. Um, and obviously, unlike world federalism, uh, European federalism has something to actually model on because they've got an EU, right? And the EU, they can basically just devise layers or little things they might put in somewhere to make it finally click together properly. They're much closer to the goal, so it's much easier, I think, for them to market. Um, But basically, we have contact with the JEF, and they're very, very, like, it's all the same. Like, they all think the same things that we do. Like, we're all very much on the same page. And hopefully, the thing is, slowly, we can develop something where we're just sort of one big federalist movement in general. Um, but we'll find out if that happens. I really hope it does. Anyway, keep going. 
<laughs> All right. Next up is the European Movement International, uh, which is a lobbying association that coordinates the efforts of associations and national councils with the goal of promoting European integration and disseminating information about that. Uh, so I've never spoke to or dealt with the European Movement International, but I know they exist. <laughs> um, again, we, we mainly deal with the people where there's like with the active sort of bases. I think there's a lot of groups that are kind of what you call much more academic. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they're dividing, creating a lot of valuable work, it's really just not relevant to what we've been doing. So we mainly try and contact the um, people like the young European Federalists and stuff because they're running around doing stuff, you know, campaigns or those sorts of things. Mm. Oh. We have the pure the pure research behind it, though. Oh, absolutely! We just, we just haven't spoken to them. That's all. It's fair. It's fair. European Federalist Party. The European Federalist Party was a pro-European, pan-European, and a federalist political party from 2011 to 2016, which advocated further integration of European Union. Became stand up for Europe as the successor movement to the European Federalist Party stand up for Europus. I think at the typo it should be Europe is. Stand up for Europe is. (laughs) Ah, Stand up for Europe? Europe Stand up for Europe is (laughs) a stand up for Europe is a pan-European NGO that advocates advocates the foundation of a European federation. Contrary to the movements like the UEF or the former EFP, Stand Up for Europe does not command any national levels anymore, but only consists of regional city teams and the European level. So that kind of, I think that there's a lot of reason behind them doing that is that they're trying to ferment this idea that the national boundaries aren't they don't make sense. They don't need to be there. So basically, they have a European level of organization and cities. Okay. And that's it. It's basically saying we're all just cities within the European Union and we have some kind of overall, you know, command authority or something. Um, and so I did this research. I didn't actually know Stand Up for Europe was a thing. Um, so that's fun. I'll have to go and actually try and find out who they are and talk to them because um, it sounds like they might be active like the um, UEF is. But, okay, so the main organization I wanted to get to um, is called Vault. Um, so Vault Europa is basically a um, uh, it's a political party that you can basically vote for in Europe. The idea is that they've made political parties in every single country, and the idea is you vote for them, and then they're very pro-EU and very pro-federalism. So... Mm-hmm they aim to sort of establish presences in all the different countries so they can slowly turn uh, Europe into a federal entity through votes and the democratic process within the countries themselves. Because obviously then their people can go off to these places and say yes or no to should we integrate more or whatever. Right. Um, which makes perfect sense. Like I think that's actually it's exactly the same model that I want to use for... Um, world federalism is to have political parties in every single country that you can vote for mm. and um, something modeled after everyone's favorite group the communists <laughs> because they, they created something called the common turn i don't know if i've explained this before but basically the common turn was the communist international and the idea of it was that the communist international would support and fund and you know throw weight behind 
uh, communist parties all over the world mm-hmm. and sort of push for them to grow and become bigger and more significant. Um, and that's how they sort of grew the communist and socialist parties all over the world quite quickly. Um, and there ain't no party like a communist party. <laughs> so the communist party stop. <laughs> um, so I'll read, I'll read what I've written here because I've got to miss things about it. But basically... Um, Vault, in many ways, is a better branded version of many of the above organizations. Vault Europa was founded on 29th of March 2017 by Andrea Venzon, along with Colombe, Cayenne Salvador, and Damien Bolsalaga, which I may or may not be saying right. Um, this was the same day, ironically, perhaps, that the UK voted to leave the EU. Um Damien Bolsalaga won a seat in the European Parliament in 2019, which has given Vault a fair amount of attention. The objective for Vault is to compete for seats all over Europe to move the needle towards a federal state again. Uh, this is all, as I've, I've said this on previous podcast episodes, but basically in the 2000s they had these votes, and it was, I think, France and the Netherlands that said no to creating like a constitution. Mm-hmm. And that sort of stopped the federal process and it's never really gotten on board again because that sort of changed the direction of the whole organization so basically the idea is to get it going in that direction again um and one of the biggest notes is they've been quite successful in fundraising so um i didn't make any notes here but they they've raised like tens of thousands of dollars from all these different individual contributors and companies and people and stuff um so they've actually gotten quite far with that, and that's something that we haven't been able to do in the World Federalist Movement yet. Um, but it's something that we really want to do more of. But we're not quite sure what happened with Vault that led up to this point. But again, like I was saying earlier, they have an easier time branding because the EU is there already, and people yeah. have been talking about that for such a long time. It's basically you're just saying, here's this thing that's not quite right yet. Let's just finish building it, um, and it's very easy to talk about because you know this it's everywhere the eu is everywhere in europe so um you know it's easier to brand and pitch things to people um so today the movement claims to have twenty-five thousand members and supporters in more than 30 european countries around 70 percent of the current members are reported not to have been politically active before joining vault um so a lot of people and from experience i know this um that a lot of the people in vault are quite young Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they've grown up in the in the EU, basically, right. and they think it's normal, it's great, it's good. Why, why, why wouldn't we have it? Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we have a lot of cross pollination between the Discord channels. So, we, our YWF Discord gets a lot of people from the Vault Discord, and we we talk to people on there all the time. So we're kind of just constantly stealing their people because, <laughs> again, they think the same thing that we do. It's just that they've never had someone come and say the same thing on a national stage before. Um, so a lot of a lot of positive contact between us and Vault. Um, today, yeah, so the movement claims, blah, 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 blah. The same founders um, have now left Vault to go start a worldwide version. It's a bit more movement and a bit less party. In my opinion, it's a little vague and confused compared to Vault, but I hope it gets somewhere. My conversations with Colombe and Andrea have been amicable, but haven't really gone far as their priorities are elsewhere. So this is because I had a couple of calls with both of them um, because they've started this new thing called Now, um, now now.world. And now.world is a bit more, I don't know, um, social movement and a little less like political interest structure 
Like, I think the first thing they did, they came out and they said it's going to be like a worldwide version of sort of what they did with Vault. Mm. Um, but the first thing they did was basically talk about um, nothing but gender equality, which mm. is obviously fair enough. But the thing is, <laughs> they're not really talking about anything else. Yeah. And so this is what I mean by really they're a bit more like global social movement sort of thing rather than being about actual global governance. And when I spoke to them, they said... They've got like these main pillars they want to hit, sort of in in, in order, um, and one of them is the global governance thing, but it's far further down the line. Right. Um, so it's like, well, okay, well, hopefully when you get there, please tell us. Yeah, <laughs> I will help you with that part. You know, we'll be waiting. Um, I don't know. The thing is, I think Vault was Vault was really unique and effective because it was part of the EU culture, whereas this is sort of indistinguishable from a lot of other movements. Um, this new thing that they've created. Uh, so I don't know if it's going to go well. I mean, they're not representing anything bad, so I absolutely hope they do well. But I, I don't know. I'm getting confused impressions from them, so we'll wait and see what happens. Has them leaving had an impact on Vault's popularity or success since then? Or? Seemingly not. Um, I think Damien, I think, runs it by himself now. Maybe other people have taken over to help. Um, I think they're still like tacitly involved, but they're not like running and fundraising anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it's it's sort of not sure. Their, their Discord's still pretty healthy, and that's the main thing we have contact with. And I think our, I think they have a Reddit as well that we cross post with. Um, but a lot of them just use ours. Again, almost everyone you talk to from Vault that is pro, you know, European federalism, you say, "Well, we're pro world federalism." And they're like, "That is." that is the better one. Like, like, <laughs> like they, they jump on board. Like, obviously that's the one I was, you know, I was working up to sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, just a bit further down the line, I guess. Yeah. And like, like I didn't realize anyone was talking about that one yet. So the thing is everyone's sort of like vaults, the, re- the slightly more realistic one and ours is the one they really want. Mm. <laughs> so <they're quite laughs> close. Um, which I'm happy with. I'm perfectly happy with that stance. Yeah. Uh, but obviously there are some people, actually, I've noticed, honestly, it's the vast minority of people that want European federalism but don't want world federalism mm-hmm. um, because they think of the sort of Eurocentric, the rest of the world's a shithole sort of mentality. Um, those people do exist, but honestly, the vast majority are in the former camp um, and on board with and us. And I bet as- even a lot of those people, if you really tease it out, and talk mm. about long, long term, they'd probably yeah. end up yeah. being on the fun- side. Because fundamentally, of if that's your opinion, Depends you're not lines. you're not terrified of the big governance thing. Mm. Like you kind of understand the relationship that happens between people and governance structures and that kind of stuff. If you're already a fan of European federalism, um, so the global one really isn't that big a step. So yeah, no, I just I thought I'd. Um, explain what's been going on in europe because we get a lot of our membership from europe yeah um a lot of people who are already european federalists then just come over and become our people as well um and i think most of our audience has come from there but we also have a lot of people from south america and north america and australia obviously not a lot of people from asia but i think that's because we've been using mainly discord and reddit (laughs) and i think they're inherently western things um some people are actually getting a growing representation from Africa. We've got a guy who came on and said he wants to start a chapter in the Congo. Cool. Um, I was like, that's awesome. Um, 
we haven't heard obviously the problem is at the moment everyone's quarantined so really we can't do much except talk online and you know when you're talking online everything sounds like it's possible and amazing <laughs> and then when you try and do it in real life you go ah challenges <laughs> so um, in the combo you know, is challenging so <laughs> yeah I, mean, I have no idea maybe it's really fertile ground because actually honestly like when you hear um there's this book called why nations fail that i read by darren asimoglu and someone else <laughs> i'd love it if they were listening to this podcast and, 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 and the other one is someone else and he's just, and he's just like i hate you so much <laughs> but, but, um uh, in that book, it's basically talking about sort of the relationship. It was really well written. Uh, the relationship between sort of a strong, effective state that is able to sort of carry out the laws that it decides on and the structures that go into that versus a country that doesn't have that and sort of um, how most nations fall apart when they sort of go towards the latter one. And... Countries like Central Africa, in the so in Central Africa, like Central Sub-Saharan Africa, um, often have fairly weak governance structures. In a lot of instances, because they don't have the funds to really maintain an effective government over that size of landmass, because people often don't understand how big Africa is. Like yeah. a place like because of the Mercator map that we use, the Mercator map, whatever it is, that distorts things, that makes Greenland yeah. look enormous. And, like, everything on the equator look a bit, like, I don't know, different size. We don't really have relative, but but apparently, like, Congo is huge. Like, it's, it's absolutely enormous. But because it's right on the equator, it looks as big as the stuff way up north. I'm looking at uh, a map now. If you go to Google Maps and zoom out far enough, it does turn into a globe. So you can get a bit of a better idea of actual okay. sizes of things. Yeah. But, um, you yeah, know, all the stuff in, like, central, like, equatorial Africa is pretty big and so mm. like if you have you know and then it's not like australia where um you know we've got a huge amount of area but we've got very high you know comparatively very high budgets and very low populations mm. we can sort of deal with it a lot easier whereas there you know you've got dense jungle that you're sort of dealing with so you can't easily transport things necessarily um you know you've got a much lower average gdp you've got an enormous number of people um you know it's just you've got a lot of challenges to deal with so uh, it, it's it's definitely working on hard mode but mm. it's a very very big place mm. and um so anyway so the point that i was making is that there's a lot of support for these kinds of things where um someone says you know we can sort of solve the governance issue by putting in this kind of thing it'll actually be able to deliver these services whatever um i've generally found the support for something global is very strong unless you cross over with the same crowd that thinks that you're also the antichrist and because <laughs> there's a lot of because there's a lot of a lot of deep christianity in africa um the two things often can go together so um it's a real crapshoot <laughs> i actually i don't know if the vast majority thinks it's good or bad <laughs> but i've had both versions come up quite a few times so right. find out <laughs> I doubt. Um, yeah, so I mean that was I mean that was most of the content that I had written out and planned. I really just wanted to explain European federalism, how it ties into what we're doing, yeah. and sort of where it's going at the moment. No, you did a good job of that. Yeah. Thank you very much. No, I'm informed because <laughs> I mean that's the thing is basically Europe is 
it was on its way to becoming a federation and then a bunch of stuff happened and it sort of stopped because like people got freaked out and now it's sort of half is half isn't but a bunch of stuff that you would want isn't there and you know with america increasingly saying that it's not going to help europe militarily anymore in the same way that it was um having all these little countries with all their little armies is just going to be incredibly ineffective and inefficient and ineffective hmm. um so europe's going to need to going to need to at least get a combined military force if america's not going to turn up anymore um but we'll find out what happens i really have no idea um yeah that is the totality of my grandiose thoughts about europe shorter episode this week but i guess i've sort of covered everything i wanted to yeah that's okay no that's all right mate been having a shorter one occasionally yeah if you guys don't have any amazingly astute thoughts that you want to throw at me i can end it there yeah i think we're done yeah i think we're done with our thoughts are going into future episodes at this point now (laughs) um all right well i've been daniel then i've been carla and I'm still Shannon. Still Shannon. Still Shannon. Still Shannon. Still. Shannon. still, Shannon. still, Shannon. still, Shannon. still-